Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor even, to gather together as family, to break bread on the very bread of life. Thank you for your grace and your love, and thank you for always keeping it real with us, never letting us escape the truth, never letting us or allowing us even to make excuses for our own lives, for the lives of others. Thank you for illuminating Scripture for us. Thank you for spiritual gifts that make a ministry like this one run, stay active regardless of the back pressure we receive constantly from the world. We pray especially for those that are still lost that we might be given in your timing uh, divine appointments to evangelize them so that we might enjoy eternal life with them forever and ever. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, when subjectivity becomes the culturally accepted norm, I want to begin with a passage, um, and think of it this way. If the, countries, if the countries of this world were people, America would likely be crowned the ruler, which means that we sit down daily to dine with her. Again, if the countries of this world were people, America would likely be crowned the ruler, which means that we sit down daily to dine with her. Go to Proverbs 23, verse 1. <clears throat> Proverbs 23, verse 1. This just does a magnificent job of capturing so many of the themes that have been evidenced in our lessons on this series titled, When Subjectivity Becomes the Culturally Accepted Norm. Proverbs 23.1, and it's a big old warning, and you'll see it throughout this entire chapter. It's a magnificent chapter. Proverbs 23, verse 1. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat. That just means curb your appetites, if you are a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself, itself wings, like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man, or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. Apply your heart to discipline 
and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. My, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother <clears throat> excuse me, be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. It's interesting because how many people think about this? It's a magnificent passage, especially given all that we've been learning this past couple of weeks. How many people in this country have bought the lies that it peddles? that sit with the ruler and truly enjoy the, his delicacies, her delicacies. How many people in this country have bought the lies it peddles? How many have since turned to a cycle of self-medication, be it wine or strong drink or drugs even? How many sound like the person whose end is illustrated in this oh-so-telling proverb? And why? Why? Because they have been seduced and then destroyed. Even so, not all is lost, as we know, for with God all things are possible. Last Thursday we received encouragement from the Holy Spirit regarding not kowtowing, not bowing down 
to the seductions and the pressures of this world. Specifically, we saw 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And we noted that this timidity that Paul wrote about often refers to weakness and lack of constitution, lack of backbone, let's say, to stand up for the Lord, especially His gospel. Especially His gospel. We noted Paul elsewhere to amplify this point in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 up here in the board, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That was Paul's way of saying, hey, listen, we're living this thing. We live the gospel reality. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit even that we're doing this thing. That's why we're not timid. That's why we have constitution. That's why we keep on plugging on, even though he says, I die daily. How many of us are dining with the ruler, enjoying the delicacies versus living a life this way? So the Spirit reminded us that our primary goal in life after salvation is to spread the gospel. Tammy and I were talking yesterday, um, and it came up. (coughs) She made a good point. Um, If what you're doing doesn't bring glory to God, then stop it. Sounds stupid, doesn't it? Sounds like end of lesson. Okay. (laughs) Seriously, if what you're doing doesn't bring glory to God, then just stop it. Anyways, the Spirit reminded us that our primary goal in life after salvation is to spread the gospel. This will never motivate, you understand? This will never motivate an arrogant or a selfish person. Unless you're the idiot keeping score of how many souls you've, you know, supposedly saved. Because then it's about you again. Unless you're doing that, you won't be motivated to live for something that benefits others the way the gospel does. Remember, arrogant, selfish people are always, let's say, hedging bets in this life. Nothing's ever done without some benefit to self. Arrogant people are always hedging bets, finding the right angle. Nothing's ever done without some benefit to themselves. That's selfishness. An arrogant person never asks, quote, what do you need in a vacuum? There's always a pre- or post-analysis that includes, often silently, you know, and what's in it for me? If I can't look good or strictly speaking, feel good about myself, or, you know, if this isn't somehow good for me, eh, I'll let somebody else do it. It never ends with 
what do you need, period. There's always some pre or post analysis that includes something like, in, you know, what's in it for me? That's a selfish person. And just so you know um, that you're listening to an honest teacher, I'll share something with you, and I think this has to do with my 20 years in business, with the last 10 being what they call a business development manager. My natural inclination is trained to seek what most of us would call a win-win situation. That's my natural tendency. What's the win-win here? You win, I win, we all win. It's even honed to uh, a very sharp edge, honestly. Probably not so much anymore, but at the time. That was my job as I managed over, I don't know, 100-something global partnerships for a Fortune 500 company. My job was to find new partners, identify the value of working together, for profit, of course, and then develop the right relationship between the companies. The problem is that God doesn't want that skill set employed in spreading his gospel. That's not what I am. I'm not a business development manager. My job isn't to find a win-win. Do you understand? It's not. I'm not supposed to be selling anything, nor am I supposed to be looking for some way to accommodate a relationship between otherwise you know, two otherwise hostile entities. In fact, the point on the board, to the point on the board, what I've learned is that my job is to simply present the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. In other words, the point I'm trying to make here that many of you, I'm sure, can benefit from is this on the board again. We're all selfish somehow. We all do this thing. Well, what's in it for me, whether we like to admit it or not? But that's what arrogance does, and that's what an arrogant person does. They never ask, what do you need in a vacuum? There's always some pre- or post-analysis that includes, you know, often to ourselves, and what's in it for me? Frankly, up here on the board, a humble person simply realizes that a person needs Christ and his gospel. Regardless of the personal cost to give it to them, they do so. They give it to them. And they find every way possible within their power to do so. And the only thing that really ever gets in the way, let's face it, and this goes back to the quote I just attributed to Tammy, was if it's not bringing glory to God, then what are we doing? Honestly, what are we doing? If it's not bringing glory to God by at least somehow advancing the gospel, the good news about his son, right? Then what are we doing? Honestly, what are we doing? That's all he's saying. And that was that Proverbs, too. You know, be careful who you're dining with. Be careful how much you're enjoying the delicacies of life. And, oh, God, we have a lot of them in America, don't we? It's ridiculous. We are spoiled rotten, which is why one of the things I'm looking forward to most for this trip to India is a nice, fresh whack upside the head for both of us, Joey and I, a, a, a level set and say, look, Stop being spoiled asses. 
This is what the rest of the world lives like. Not in this little American bubble where people complain about not having uh, steak knives, matching steak knives. Do you follow? This is why the Spirit had us read the whole of 2 Corinthians 4 last week. Go to 2 Corinthians 4 1. 2 Corinthians 4 1. He's just trying to say, get your bearings right. Remember your purpose here. Remember why I left you here. Remember why I inspired the Word of God. Remember why I've given you all these things. And stop pretending, like I mentioned on Sunday, I think. Stop pretending that some of it doesn't apply to you. Because that's not true. Everything in here applies to us. I mean, unless it's a, you know, a specific circumstance, obviously. 2 Corinthians 4.1. So just stop pretending. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That means, you know, pretty much living for others. And even if our gospel, this is the key to his ministry, to ours as well, even if that thing, this gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let uh, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you." But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. That was the resurrection messages. For all things are for your sakes, others in other words, in view, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Again, there's that thing, I mean, what are you doing? Is it bringing glory to God? Because that's the end goal. Therefore, do we, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So eventually we've got to get back to why the, God, the apostle is so encouraging. So this is our last night on this. We need to put 
this series to bed, which really pivoted on this key point. This is the one that keeps coming back. When subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm, societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted godliness. And then, of course, this bullet instability becomes the accepted norm, which really is not from God's perspective, stability at all. It's just chasing a carrot and living a life of anxiety and worry and instability. And that's no way to live. Not, certainly not as a believer in Christ, the rock. For godly reasons alone, the Spirit has had me use the issue of abortion several times now. And I, trust me, but just by your body language right now, just by the adjustments you just all made, micro-adjustments, which I see, I know it's not comfortable, okay? It's not comfortable for me either. But for whatever reason, he's had me use the issue of abortion several times now. And for the record, only he knows how and why that topic might affect each one of you as individuals. That's not my business. I'm not up here trying to condemn anybody I'm not trying to do anything but prove a point, a bigger point, a much, much bigger point than abortion. abortion. What we've done with abortion in America is just a symptom, one of many, many symptoms. Is there a certain gravity to it? Yeah, of course there is. Is there a certain severity to it? Absolutely. We're talking about killing people. But that's not been the mainstay. It's just he's using that for whatever reason to prove a point, to show you something, how Satan works in this world and how he propagates lies, and how he, he uh, undercuts truth from the Word of God, and how he makes and spreads misery amongst individuals. So only he knows how and why the topic might affect each one of you as individuals, so please don't misinterpret my using this as our example. I'm under instruction, in other words. I've got to make one last point with you. Using this topic as the launching pad... Namely, context switching. We didn't get to finish that work. This idea of context, context switching. And what he's doing really is he's, gonna, he's pointing this out in a, to a greater degree so that you have greater wisdom. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is how a sleazy attorney works. Satan is an attorney, after all. His agents are trained that way. The ones, his agencies, whatever, are being trained up that way in this world. There's always some sleazy, underhanded way that his agents are using to undermine this. And they use an awful lot of context switching. And we'll get into that in a second. So just to resituate ourselves, recall, according to OperationRescue.org, women give an average of 3.7 reasons why they are seeking an abortion, including the following up here on their board. 21% inadequate finances, 21% not ready for responsibility, 16% woman's life would be changed too much, 12% problems with relationships unmarried, 11% too young and or immature, 8% children are grown, she has all she wants, 3% baby has possible health problems, less than 1% pregnancy caused by rape or incest, 4% other. So, this idea of context switching arose in our lesson last week, and it's something that the most cunning debaters will use to win their battles. So, you, in other words, as the Bible says, you have to be shrewd 
just like them. Just like a fox, shrewd, just like them, just to see what they're doing. In many ways, I often ask the Lord uh, in my agony sometimes, right? Why do you make me see all this stuff? Like, why? Why can't I not see this for like one day? You can't. He says, because they're the foxes. You have to, as Sun Tzu would say, you have to know your enemy, right? Which means I have to delve into the disgustingness. This is why I can't wait for heaven. He's not going to be around anymore. I have to delve into this, and you have to do this as well. You have to delve into the disgustingness that is this world just so we can defend against the disgustingness spreading like a disease. It's gross, but this is what we're commanded to do to understand our enemies who are you know, the most cunning debaters. And they use context switching to win their battles. So for the sake of our lesson this evening, let's define what context switching like this is. And, you know, this is Ed Collins' version. This is what, I don't care what you call it. I'm not even sure if context switching is a, you know, a philosophical term. I don't care. I'm just trying to teach you something, the way that this uh, sickening world works. In the realm of debate, this is when a person uses something related to the main topic, but inappropriately. For example, using a corner case to nullify a general policy. People do this all the time in politics. So ridiculous. Oh, well, so-and-so's here with me, and he, his leg got blown off in battle, and that's why we should do this. And it's like, yeah, but he's one of, I'm not saying I don't sympathize, I'm not saying we shouldn't address the, that situation, but that situation, just because he's a human being, doesn't mean the rest of the human beings fall in that situation. But that's what ridiculous people do. That's what people who have agendas do. They use corner cases. They see something they don't like that covers them. So what do they do? They don't find a case that addresses their situation. They find some weird corner case to disprove the general case. They're not interested in that person. They're a pawn. That's what Satan does. This is how context switching works. So in the case of abortion, you hear so-called pro-choice debaters always bring up these rape cases to justify the other 99 point something percent. Not that any abortion is godly, but that argument reeks of context, switch, context switching, lacking integrity altogether. This is evil because the substance of the argument has nothing to do with the topic being discussed, except for being in the same general category. This would be like, now listen, this is true. This would be like saying that since accidents somehow or sometimes result in death, we can't convict any person of murder. even if it was wholly intentional. Well, you killed somebody. It was a total accident. Kid ran out with a ball. Yeah, but you ran him over, so it's either... Well, since we can't do that, then... Isn't it ridiculous? This is the same, though. Same kind of gross, grossly misappropriated argument. Again, 
This would be like saying that since accidents sometimes result in death, we can't convict any person of murder, even if it was wholly intentional. In both the accident and the murder, death occurred. There's your common category. Someone died an untimely death. However, is it, or isn't it fair to say that these two cases really have nothing at all to do with each other? Yeah, they have nothing to do with each other, except that they were untimely deaths. That's context switching. The amazing thing in America is that while no court would try an accidental death as a murder, the courts used, used a supposed, we learned a couple of lessons back that it wasn't even a real rape case, it was fabricated, but the courts used a supposed rape case, Roe versus Wade, to rule on the general case. And again, I'm really not trying to argue the Roe versus Wade decision here. I'm trying to teach you how the God of this world uses context switching to get you to swallow unholy things. Up here on the board, a little bit more on that. For something to be holy, it must be done with integrity. For something to be done in integrity, it must be taken in context. Of all things, the Bible must be taken in context. Again, for something to be holy, it must be done with integrity. For something to be done in integrity, it must be taken in context. Of all things, the Bible must be taken in context. People that lack integrity will use whatever argument spells win. That's what a sleazy lawyer does. They will use whatever argument spells win, regardless of whether it's appropriate or not. Go to Matthew 4.1. Matthew 4.1. And if you think it can't be done with the Bible, you are sadly mistaken. Here's a perfect example of misappropriating something holy, Scripture itself, out of context to try to get something ungodly done. Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. So Satan is quoting Scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels angels came and began to minister to him. 
Again, what's the point? The point is on the board. Did you see what Satan tried to do? He tried to use context switching. He tried to take something out of context to trip up the Lord. For something to be holy, it must be done with integrity. Obviously, Satan was not functioning in integrity. For something to be done in integrity, it must be taken in context. Obviously, Satan was taking things out of context. Holy Scripture even. So therefore, of all things, the Bible must be taken in context. We see the attorney of all attorneys in action in this passage, using otherwise holy scripture out of context. Why? Because Satan has no integrity. He doesn't have any integrity. And he isn't interested in truth. Only meeting his own disgustingly arrogant selfish desires. And if you think about it, you may know someone like this, and it just may very well be the one looking in the mirror. I'm being, I mean, everybody here should be like, yep. Some of you are like, yeah, I know somebody, but it ain't me. I look in the mirror and all I see is beauty and virtue. <laughs> Seriously. This is about us. It's not just about pointing fingers. Here's the more, if we didn't need these lessons, they wouldn't be being taught. Amen? Here's the more general principle from last week. <clears throat> Context switching. Evil begets evil. If a person is unwilling to defend their position within the context of it, they lack integrity, which is evil. And from that decision point on, no argument is wholly viable. If you're willing, in other words, if you're willing to sac or surrender integrity in some situation, contextually, then the rest of the... I mean, don't even argue with people like that, including yourself. And you know how you do this, right? But I really want this thing, so I'm going to find some way to justify it. And some of us are so ridiculous, we go to the Bible. Oh, it says right here, you know, Jesus loves me no matter what. Well, read Romans 5 and 6. Are we supposed to put grace to the test? Nope. Didn't we just read that? We shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So stop trying to justify unholiness. Stop trying to say to yourself, oh, I was, I was never like that idiot in Proverbs who was dining with the ruler and enjoying all those delicacies. I reject it. I only eat meatloaf and spam. Not even meatloaf, spam. The jelly. Ooh, ooh. People Because that's how, that's how much I abstain from ungodliness. That's how much I reject the delicacies of this world. Really. Really. Look around. Look at what's on your body, even. Ooh, it got quiet. It was like, ha <laughs> ha. Oh, whoa. Whoa, mister. Remember, America, our neighbors are not our standard of living. God says if, you, if, if you're surviving with the food and you're not dying because of the elements, I've done my job. Anything after that is creme de la creme. Anything after that is above and beyond what, you know, is required. So none of us are innocent, let's face it. 
We're all guilty of these things, but we do like to point fingers. Oh, Satan's such a dog. He's such a jerk. He's evil. No, I, you're evil. I'm evil. That's the point. That's why we're learning. The final portion of this series is upon us, which really harkens back once again to this up here on the board. 2 Timothy 1, 7. <clears throat> For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Go to 2 Timothy 2.1. 2 Timothy 2.1. So you can't even relax until you're being honest with yourself. You ever find that out? You can't relax until you're honest with yourself. If you keep playing that game like you're holier than thou, you're never going to relax. You actually have to relax. And you actually have to be honest to do it. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Reference to the power we just saw. Verse 2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Just think of Paul's personality and who he would have chosen to carry on his teaching legacy. Timid guys? No. Power, love, discipline. That's who he would have sought out. I'm not saying they didn't start off, but you know what I'm saying. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. That requires discipline. Last time I checked, no cheating. Right? What's that old plaque say? True integrity is doing the same thing when no one's looking? Or doing the right thing when no one's looking? That's integrity. What did we just learn about integrity? <coughs> Unless he compete, uh, competes according to the rules, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen as others, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will all, or he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the, names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name on the, on the Lord from a pure heart. And just so you know, just as a little teaser, I just used those last three verses in my latest blog entry. You haven't seen it yet. It's due out Saturday in your email boxes. Verse 23, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Here's where we ended last Thursday. Again, was there leading them to repent, uh, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Okay, now let's finish up this series now. When subjectivity becomes a cultural or culturally accepted norm, look at 2 Timothy 3.1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men, now just think about our country. It's ridiculous. It's almost like this is like written for the things we endure, or we see even, and sometimes live. For men will be lovers of self. Raise your hand if you've ever been a lover of self. John Gardner, that was, he labored. He's like this, okay. Pat's like, put your hand up. Put your hand up, mister. For men will be lovers of... I mean, what's not to love, John? I mean, it's understandable in your case. <laughs> For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. That's a big one. Oh, boy, that's a big one. Everybody skips over that. It just sounds so godly. You know, it's something the Bible says. No, think about that. <coughs> unholy. If whatever you're doing doesn't bring glory to God, you might have a problem with that. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> what is that? Why did it do that? <laughs> lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. There's another one. Irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control is another one. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Now, Here's where, again, your humble pastor has to take a big old piece of humble pie and swallow an error that I've taught in the past. Let me give you the original Greek word on this phrase. You'll see the English root, gyna, as in gynecology. That's a female thing. If you're a man and you're going to gynecologist, we need to talk. <laughs> <clears throat> Nowadays, that's not a... I'm serious. Just saying. 
You identify. Weak women from Gunai Karion, transliteration is Gaina Karia. This word specifically speaks to women, not men. In context, Paul is pointing out the easiest prey, the weaker vessels. 1 Peter 3 7. Why do you think Satan uses feminism as his Trojan horse today? Again, weak women from Gunai Karion. I don't have the right to change that, to misinterpret that, to say Paul was writing to men and women because he wasn't. He would have said weak people, but he said weak women. Lo and behold, it's a very womanly word. Gyna. This word specifically speaks to women, not men. In context, Paul is pointing out the easiest prey, the weaker vessels. 1 Peter 3, 7. Why do you think Satan uses feminism as his Trojan horse today? For closure on the era I mentioned earlier, and I apologize, but that's how I was taught, so I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying that's how it happened. But we all grow. And the more we have the truth, the better off we all are. I have always believed and therefore taught that, quote, weak women referred to both genders. Now, I'm not saying there's not certain principles, loosely fitting principles. That's not what I'm saying. But this scripture says weak women, specifically. I've always taught and believed that these weak women referred to both genders. But as I've taught you over the course of the past couple of years, we ought to take whatever Holy Scripture gives us as fact. Nothing more and nothing less. Amen? If that's what we're given, that's what we're given. If Paul meant to say men and women, he would have used a word that meant men and women. He wouldn't have used gyna. And given the fact that the Holy Spirit, again, could have used multiple other words to describe not just weak women, we must conclude that Paul was addressing only women. If that's offensive to a woman hearing this message, and I hope none of you are offended by that, I say take it up with God, because it's His word, not mine. Again, verse 6, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. There was also, you got to figure, in context here, this probably was happening frequently where these, you know, gallivanting false teachers would come swooping through and eye out weak women and take advantage of them. Maybe they're, you know, they're on an emotional upswing. Maybe they're having a hard time. Maybe their husband's a jackass. Who knows what the situation is? But the Bible says they're the weaker vessel. And if you're going to go after one, if you're a wolf, who do you go after? You go after the one, the, the one that's weaker because it's easier prey. So that's what we have here. We have weak women. So let's not muck it up. Let's just call it what it is, weak women. And we'll have a better idea of the context of what's going on when Paul wrote this. Look at verse 7. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Up here on the board. Now this is an interesting thing. 
And we need to focus on this. So first, Paul points out weak women. Okay, and I've taught you uh, what the weak part uh, is, has to do with emotionalism, um, these kinds of things. But they're also always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning. Now, just think about that. Before I even read the principle, if you haven't already run ahead and done so, just think of the world that we live in. Okay, a woman walks by a newspaper stand, and what do they see? Cosmo, us, people, shape, ship shifters. I'm just kidding. Shape shifters, not even those. You know what I mean, right? They might as well be because they're not actually real. No, nobody on the covers of these magazines is actually real. They've been Photoshopped. It doesn't know the story. But they're always learning something new. Oh, I didn't know I could be um, better if I just did this diet or this face cream or this push-up bra or this thing or this. Where's the articles in this thing anyways? You ever looked at one of those magazines? It's all, uh, what do you call it, advertisers. It's like, where's the articles? It's like this long. You suck. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I just paid $15 for an article that it was like a barrage on my senses, my godliness, my virtue. Do you know what I mean? Like that, you might as well say that in every one. You'll never measure up. Oh, that's a good edition. That's the November edition. You'll never measure up. You're flabby. That's the December one. You're a terrible whatever. A terrible cook. What, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever you're struggling with. That's what the world, Satan wants to do that. But here's the problem. The world is constantly like just pumping. It's a multi, 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 multi-billion dollar business, right? Constantly pumping out things for women to learn. Boom, boom, boom. Learn this, learn this. Learn. And they never actually come to the truth, which is God made you perfect. God made you just the way he wanted to make you. He made you lovely. He made you beautiful. He made you kind. He made you special. All these things apply to you. But yet nobody believes it. Because they're not out learning this, are they? What's near their nightstand? Us, Cosmo, shape, shapeshifters. <laughs> this isn't. Right? It should be. But it isn't. What's on their nightstand? I don't know. Fabio on the cover? Uh, is he even popular? I don't know. You know what I mean. I mean, this is what Paul was saying. He's like, you, you women are prey. You're prey. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Someone's always got something for you to learn. In context, Paul is referring to those women who vacillate between subjective societal norms. You know, 200 years ago, uh, a more, uh, what would you call it, rotund-type woman was considered the, the beauty. A stick figure would have been like, ooh. Then, like, you know, somewhere in the last century or something, a stick figure is considered the beauty. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying it doesn't matter. But that's how, that's how the world keeps women chasing. Chasing something that's not even real, that's not godly. And so they vacillate between subjective societal norms. Even today, many have come out saying they feel pressured 
to be less like the woman God made them to be by feminists in general or some kind of feministic type agenda. If, if, in other words, if you're, a, if you're a godly woman today, you suck. That's the, that's the, no, I'm serious. That's what this world wants to tell you. I'm serious. Anybody, does anybody disagree? If you're a godly woman nowadays, there's no way you're going to be embraced by this world. Because you're, if you're a godly woman, that means first and, oh, first and foremost, you're going to submit, if you're married, to your husband. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why would you do that? Why'd you even change your name? Why would you submit to a man? They're just stupid oafs. And I feel, I can't empathize because I'm not a woman, but I sympathize. It's an awful crying shame what I see going on. You women, to me, every single one of you is beautiful. Honest to goodness, every single one of you is beautiful to me. And I don't even see you the way God sees you. I'm flawed. I got prejudices. Imagine how God sees you, the one who created you, and doesn't ever make mistakes. You're magnificent. I don't care if you're two foot tall and 7,000 pounds. <laughs> For health reasons, you might consider Nutrition Magazine. But you know what I'm saying. I'm just being silly. I care about your health. Yeah, you know. So, it's a crying shame, though, right? I was telling uh, Tammy yesterday that I, I do really feel bad for women in this world. Honest to goodness. On the one hand, God made them to be responders, beautifully made to suit His purposes. And on the other, they have this awful pressure from the world to dominate men. I actually think in some ways, women want to dominate men more than men want to dominate men. Honest to goodness. We get, men, you know, that's the way we, you know, we're kind of like, you know. But women really, in a very subversive, manipulative, awful way, are being trained up to dominate men. It's awful, because it's not actually how they're made. And if they don't, they're shamed, and in some cases, shunned. And that just breaks my heart. That just breaks my heart. So again, don't be like one of those weak women. This is why we have the inspired Word of God. Why Paul said, watch out. Because these guys are predators. They're preying on and betting on that you're weak. That you'll buy this lie. That you'll keep on learning and being confused. There's no reason for you to be confused. There's no reason for you not to feel beautiful, to feel loved. There's no, even if you're single, it has nothing to do with marriage even. This, this is about you and the Lord. This is, about the, this is about the guy who 100% absolutely chose you to be his bride. No questions asked. No flaw was too big or too great. Nothing. nothing. He said, I want you. I want you. 
So the hell of the world. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the privilege of studying your word. Thank you for giving us context, context that leads to life, context that leads to peace, happiness, contentment, all the things that you've promised us. Thank you so much for the ability to witness, to testify for your son. We just asked for your blessings and your traveling mercies as we go out and do such things. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray.